Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. He was called the Mozart of basketball, and no matter what they asked him to do, no matter how they asked him to change his style of play, the Mozart of basketball adapted. No one worked harder. No one spent more time practicing his craft, and no one had more passion for the game. There might have been basketball players who did as much to be the best they can, to realize their potential. But you'd be very, and I mean very, hard-pressed to find someone who loved the game more and worked at it more than Drazen Petrovic. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about the career of the Mozart of basketball, Drazen Petrovic. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thanks for joining. Today, we're going to take a look back at the tragic story of a basketball player whom many thought was on the road to superstardom. Drazen Petrovic. Back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Drazen was making a name for himself in the NBA. He was already very well known in the world of international basketball, but he knew to be considered among the most elite players in the world, you needed to establish yourself as a star in the NBA. So, he left Europe and joined the Portland Trailblazers. It didn't go as well as he had hoped it would. After spending just over a year with the Blazers, Portland obliged and sent Drazen packing to the New Jersey Nets when Drazen had requested a trade. Again, it didn't go as he had hoped it would go, and he came very close to quitting and going back home. However, after one season with the Nets, New Jersey parted ways with its coach, Bill Fitch, and hired Chuck Daly. Now, Daly was a fan of Drazen's. He knew just how good he was when it came to playing internationally, and Daly took the reins off Petrovic, and suddenly Drazen became a star. And we're going to get into all of it with my guest today, Todd Spear, who wrote the book, The Mozart of Basketball. Now, a few months ago, when I was planning out episodes of Sports Forgotten Heroes, I got to thinking about Draws and, and, and what a great story he'd make for the podcast. So I went to work. I was able to track down Todd, and he was more than happy to join me for this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Now, Drazen, like I said, I thought about doing a podcast about him a few months ago. A short time later, the horrific incident with Kobe Bryant, 
his daughter, and the seven other passengers occurred. I want all of you to know that this podcast has nothing to do with that. It's just a very unfortunate coincidence. You see, in the 1992-93 season, Drazen had become the star of the Nets, a team on the rise. After the season, Drazen, by virtue of a few very interesting circumstances, traveled overseas for a vacation with an acquaintance. Drazen was a passenger in a car driving along the Autobahn and was ultimately killed in a collision. A life taken way too soon. While we'll talk about what led to that accident today, we will mostly concentrate on his incredible passion for the game of basketball, his work ethic, how he dominated in his then home country of Yugoslavia, how he realized his goal of making it to the NBA, the disappointment that followed, and finally, the thrill of becoming a star in the NBA. And of course, I'll touch on a whole lot more with Todd, the author of the book, The Mozart of Basketball. Now, a few notes about the recording for this show. Todd lives in Australia, and I decided to try something new. We did the interview via a computer connection, and it worked out well. However, the audio is a little tinny, but still very, very clear. And you won't have any trouble listening. Additionally, the interview took place at 9 a.m. on a Sunday in Australia. So you might hear a few very young voices in the background. Those are Todd's children. But again, it shouldn't cause any trouble at all. As for the book, The Mozart of Basketball, I want to thank the great people at Sports Publishing, an imprint of Sky House Publishing, for connecting me with Todd. In particular, Jason Katzman for all the help he provided. This book was published several years ago, but is a terrific read, and I encourage everyone listening to get a copy. It really goes into great detail about the phenomenal career of Drazen Petrovich. Also, as always, please spread the word and let your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes. This is my 78th episode, and it's still going strong. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram, the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook, or check out SportsFH.com. This is where you can find every episode I've done so far. Learn more about my guests, the Forgotten Stars, and links to more information about everyone I've talked about, and you can also click the comments area and send me suggestions or make comments about the podcast. Again, that's sportsfh.com. Also, please, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, give the podcast a five-star rating, and if you can, write a great review. Thanks. Okay, now let's get to today's show about Drazen Petrovich with my guest, Todd Spear. Todd, thanks so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Thrilled you could be with me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Warren. Great. Hey, um, where does your interest in Drazen Petrovich come from? That's a good question, and it's 
something I've thought about often or thought about often when I was writing the book, but uh, I grew up uh, a huge NBA fan and, and a lover of the history of the game. Uh, so I was always aware of Drazen's importance and, and where he sort of fit uh, in the jigsaw puzzle. But uh, I suppose the thing that propelled me to look into his life further uh, actually came uh, from a discussion I had with a, a scout at an Oklahoma City Thunder game uh, in the 08-09 season. Uh, I was a credentialed member of the media at that point and uh, had a discussion about Kevin Durant, you know, as, as you do, and uh, his ability to come off screens and shoot. And this, this particular scout said to me, uh, you know, Petrovic. Petrovic is the best I've seen at that. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's not a name that we hear enough of. Uh, I started investigating his life and thought uh, the idea for a book would be great. But uh, it sort of propelled from there. Then, of course, later on the film, uh, Once Brothers came out. I'm not sure if you've seen it. The uh, 30 for 30 uh, came out. And that sort of brought Jars into the forefront of people's minds a little bit in a historical sense. And by that time, I'd already started writing. So the pieces fell into, into place. But uh, always been interested in, in his life. But really didn't know a lot about him other than his NBA career. And as it turned out, um, what a fascinating 28 years uh, he had. Oh, absolutely. What other interesting thing, where did you get the name the Mozart of basketball? Yeah, that's actually a nickname that was bestowed upon him by an Italian writer, um, Enrico Campagna, uh, who I spoke to for the book. Um, he saw something in Drazen at an early age that inspired him to give him the nickname and just the way that he moved on the floor, also the way he thought. You know, Drazen was a risk taker in Europe, uh, especially on the fast break. You know, he would do uh, exciting things with the ball. And, yeah, that's sort of where the nickname came from. And I just thought there's something special about uh, you know, a nickname for an athlete, you know, if you can attach the two things. The thing is, Drazen wasn't known as Mozart when he played in the NBA, but he, he was known by everyone as the Mozart of basketball in Europe. And I thought it was important to tie, obviously, Europe to his story. So that just seemed like the right, the right name for the book. And, uh, yeah, that's, I think, an appropriate title for it. It's, it's a heck of a name, and, and in reading your book, The Mozart of Basketball, and how technical he was, um, how he broke down a game, um, how he practiced and dedicated his game to the life, you know, dedicated his life to the game of basketball, it certainly, uh, certainly fits. You know, obviously you needed to make contact with and interview so many people from his native Yugoslavia or Croatia. How did you connect with them and how long did it take you to write the book? Uh, to answer the, the latter part of your question, it was about a four-year process. But the interview, you know, it was tough because uh, you know, a lot of these things aren't available readily from a, just a Google search. So you've got to, I made a big list of names to start with. Uh, and then as I researched, more names got added to the list. All these little little pieces that, that fit into Dryzen's story along the way. But uh, 
oftentimes, I suppose, in a traditional way, when you would interview someone, you would ask them, hey, do you know this person or where could I find this person? Uh, the language barrier was difficult. Um, of the 80-plus people I interviewed, 60-plus um, were European. So, you know, all the different languages mixed in. My wife is from Mexico, so she did some of the interviews the people I spoke to in, in Spain uh, when Giles was, was with Real Madrid. But, yeah, you just try to build a list of contacts. You rely on other people to give you phone numbers. You call people at all hours of the day. You know, you hear the term labour of love and obviously you can relate. You, you have a podcast. It's a labour of love when you dive into something. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to dip your toe in. You want to go all the way in. So, yeah. I tried to, to, to speak to as many people, particularly for the European portion of his life, uh, as I could, but it, it, it was tough. I'm, I'm not going to lie and uh, very proud of, of the people that I reached. And, of course, that, the ultimate reward was that was being able to correspond with his brother and, and his mother, so, which came at the back end of the project. So, yeah, uh, a lot of work went into it, but it was very, very rewarding. Um. His NBA career, obviously, it was not a very long career, cut short by that horrific tragedy. But for those who might have never heard of Drazen or don't remember much about him, please tell us who Drazen Petrovic was and just how good he was becoming. Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. So Drazen was drafted by Portland in 1986. Um, he was only 22 years of age. He didn't come to the NBA until 1989. And at the time, there was very few European players. Uh, in fact, there was there was only two prior to Drazen uh, who had played in the NBA and, and each had only lasted one year. I think to understand Drazen and where he fits in is it's to understand the NBA's perception of Europeans uh, in the mid to late 1980s. And that was, you know, we can't correspond with these players. How can we expect them to carry out an instruction on the floor? Also, are they as tough as us? Us meaning the American players, obviously the establishment. So Drazen uh, came to Portland in 1989 and he did not just want to be a reserve. He didn't want to just be a a player that played a little bit. He wanted to be a star. And I think that's what differentiates him from, say, Vladi Divac, Sarunas Marshallonis, Alexander Volkov, etc., who, you know, it was to come to the NBA and that was that. Was that. Drazen wanted to be a star and I think that's the, the main differentiation. As, to far, as far as how good he was becoming, uh, after Portland was tough, he didn't play much. Obviously, he was playing behind Clyde Drexler, but... Once he got traded to New Jersey, a trade which, mind you, he initiated through his agent, Warren Lagari, and that speaks to, you know, his determination to be what he believed he should have been. Uh, he, he was averaged 20 a game in 1992, and then he averaged almost 23 a game in 93. He didn't make the All-Star team in 93, but he was uh, All-NBA third team, so essentially one of the 15 best players in the world. So to go from not playing at all in Portland to being one of the 15 best players in the world speaks to sort of his rise. Um, as to how good he was becoming, you know, that's that's the the question, isn't it? I think he was... Yeah. There was more in store for Drazen, which which makes the accident 
um, all that more cruel. Sure. You know, um, as far as playing basketball is concerned, his parents, I don't know if I have this right, Joel or Jole or Hole? Uh, Yoli. Yoli, okay. There you go. Bizerka. Bizica. Bizica. They originally wanted Drazen and his older brother, Alexander, to play music. But neither showed a whole lot of interest, and they took every opportunity they could to skip music practice to get out on the court. In fact, at a very young age, Drazen, he was a little clever. He would loosen the strings on his guitar so his instructor would have to retighten and tune the guitar, which gave Drazen time to spend on the court instead of practicing the guitar. So talk about how Drazen's parents finally came around and actually they might have been disappointed in the fact that their two boys didn't want to play music, but they loved basketball and they encouraged them to be the best they could. I mean, that says a lot that, well, we want you to play music, but if this is what you love, go out, do it, and be the best you can at it. And boy, wasn't Drazen clever the way he got out to practice with the guitar, loosening <laughs> the strings? That makes me smile, Warren, hearing that story. And, you know, it's funny, all these little things you don't think about after, you know, you write them or you research them, but that, that's exactly true, exactly right, and it speaks to personality traits that were consistent throughout his life. Uh, you know, that's a small measure of determination, you know, to, to do something such as that. But, you know, Drazen came from a middle-class family. His father uh, was a local chief of police, uh, and his mother worked in, in childcare and in, in, in the library system. So came from a solid family. And, you know, expectations that his brother Artso and, and, and uh, Drazen become something of themselves. But, yes, you're absolutely right. Whatever they chose to pursue, um, the parents were going to support them, and that, that continues even to this day. But, you know, uh, Drazen was largely influenced by his brother. Um, it was a different climate back then. You know, you couldn't rely on television or, or media to pursue maybe an athlete as a as a as a idol drazen's first idol was his older brother um and uh you know that's what led him into basketball and uh it was a a very good combination they were on the floor they played together at the domestic level and also at the national level but uh drazen's determination from an early age was really unusual not only for the family but for for anybody in that area and it, it propelled him to great heights it sure did where did where did his love for the game come from i mean how big was basketball in his hometown and i'm going to try to get this right sibinek Sibinek, um, uh, yeah very Shibinic. close okay Sibinek. and how dedicated to the game did he become i mean he had a real love for basketball. I mean, I don't, there aren't many people with that kind of passion for something like that. Yeah, that's a good observation. And, you know, that was a, a thing that was brought up to me often during the interview process was that Drazen was very regimented from an early age. 
there was a lot of structure to his workouts. I can even speak to myself. When I would play basketball as a kid, it would be, you know, I'd go and shoot and, you know, my imagination would take over. Drazen was very prepared. He would set up chairs. He would do drills. Everything had purpose. Everything had meaning. Uh, you know, as far as his inspiration, as I mentioned, his brother was one. But the basketball in Yugoslavia was very, very strong in the 1970s. Um, there was a player actually that played at Brigham Young uh, who was also from Croatia. His name was uh, Kresimir Cosic, um, who was still regarded by some as the greatest European ever. Uh, and he he was the, the measuring stick for basketball in Yugoslavia and also propelled them to, you know, Olympic gold, European championships, world championships, etc. So basketball in Yugoslavia was very healthy. But as far as that inner drive, you know, where that came from, nobody was able to tell me that. Drazen was just a motivated person. And, you know, you see these people in, in, in life who have something, have an extra gear that, the average person doesn't have. Well, Drazen was was blessed with that. And there was, as I said, a lot of meaning to his workouts. And he was very determined from a very young age to be the best he could be. And, and he certainly was on his way. But I don't know where the motivation to be the first great European came from or to make the NBA or to be in America. Where that came from, no one was able to say. And maybe if Drazen was alive today, he might be able to articulate it. But uh, a very special motivation he had, and, and yeah, it was evident uh, early on. Um, you wrote that he really had to work at the game to become as good as he was. In other words, look, there had to be some God-given talent there, but he really had to work hard to to refine that. Um Was there God-given talent there or did it all come from hard work, I guess is my, my question. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, I've thought about that often because Drazen, uh, you know, if you look at his contemporaries, Tony Kukoc was six feet ten and could run and was a terrific athlete. I'm not sure that I consider Drazen, you know, your prototypical terrific athlete. Yes, he was, he was tall. He was six feet five. But Drazen, I think his greatest asset was his motivation, was his work ethic, was his determination. Those things, uh, you know, they may not be outwardly present in a physical sense, but his God-given ability, so to speak, was his, you know, unrelenting motivation or unrelenting pursuit of excellence. And, you know, you look at, uh, as I mentioned, his contemporaries, Kukoc, Raja, uh, you know, Vladi Divac, all very successful players, but their overriding characteristic is not this mental approach that Drazen had. And I think that's what separated him from his others, uh, from his um, contemporaries, as I said. And that was his greatest asset, in my opinion. And he, and he had that work ethic throughout his entire career, all the way up till, you know, the tragedy. Well, he even, you know, his his desire to represent his country, Croatia, uh, in a in a tournament that was effectively meaningless, is actually why he was in Poland uh, in June of 1993, which is, you know, the series of events that led to the accident that took his life. So he he wasn't even healthy in that particular tournament. So yes, 
completely agree. That's, you know, his greatest trait was his, his determination. And he, there's absolutely no other explanation as to why he was uh, as successful as he was. Um, you know, he advanced pretty quickly too. He worked hard. He loved the game and his talent became evident pretty quickly. And he started to play on older division teams and he caught the eyes of great Yugoslavian coaches and, and players talk about his quick ascent, um, how quickly people noticed his talent and said, if he's only going to play with the 12-year-olds, he's not going to get any better. We need to move him up to the 13- and 14-year-olds. And this continued throughout his uh, uh, junior career. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we see now with Luka Doncic, the amount of um, recognition given to his advanced ability as a young age and, and tracing it back to, you know, his early teen years where he was exposed to, to greater competition against older people. You know, Drazen's rise was exactly the same to the point where in 1983, um, he was playing for Shebenka in his hometown uh, in the Yugoslavian competition, which is the strongest in, in, in Europe at the time, was the strongest in Europe. Uh, and he led them to, you know, the, the championship game, uh, which obviously resulted in a, in a dubious result. But the fact that he was among the best players in Europe, even at his mid to late teens, speaks to sort of the advanced, um, you know, advanced degree that he was playing at. He first represented the Yugoslavian national team in 1981 um, on a tour of uh, American colleges. So, and he was born in October of 64. So he would have been just 17 at that age. So yeah, advanced at a very young age, but as you mentioned, identified by the right people, as I mentioned before, Yugoslavian basketball at that time was very, very healthy. And he was identified by the right people and put in the right situations to succeed. Um, before we go any further, why don't we talk about Drazen off the court? What kind of person was he, you know, on a, on a personal level? Was he friendly? Was he a good student? What was life like for Drazen Petrovic? Yeah, you know, that's something, the initial stages of researching the book, it was all about basketball. You know, Drazen's life was basketball. And I tried to peel back the layers a little bit on his personality, but there was outside of basketball there was there was not a great deal to report you know people are telling me he loved Fanta like he loved drinking the orange soda or you know like he had you know like a, a particular uh, a girlfriend Renata who he was very close with but you know he was a very friendly person and a very generous person but there was not a whole lot to him outside of basketball you know it's funny uh, I'll give you a quick story the uh, when I visited Drazen's mother in Zagreb in 2016, she told me a story that uh, a gentleman came in uh, to the museum, the Petrovich Museum, um, in the early 2010s. Uh, Drazen had lent him money in the 1980s, uh, lent him money to go to medical school. None of Drazen's family knew this, uh, and he'd gone on to become a doctor, and he had come back to, to repay the money to the family. You know, Drazen's mother didn't know who he was, didn't know anything about his story, but Drazen had, obviously this gentleman was not in a position to go to medical school. Drazen had, had, had financed that dream of his. So he was a generous person, 
um, of all his friends that I spoke to, you know, loved to laugh. Uh, he was, uh, you know, loved to go out and eat. He had his spots in and around New York City and around around the New Jersey, the East Rutherford area that he liked to frequent. Uh, not not a party guy though. Not you know, not a guy that would go out. Uh, drinking or anything of that nature. He was very much focused on, on his goals in life. Um, never got married. He uh, was in a, a long-term relationship until about 1991. Um, and the idea of marriage was, was something he wasn't ready to go into yet. So that relationship ended. But Because of was, his dedication to basketball. Yeah, absolutely. The, the goal was his life. Um, and that's what he was dedicated to. So, yeah, a friendly generous person, but very much a a goal-oriented and motivated, driven person. It's funny you talk about the person who uh, uh, came to pay back for medical school because what I wanted to ask you was, and I found this really surprising, that that someone who could sink a basket from downtown like Drazen could, he had somewhat of a disability growing up, did he not? He had problems with his legs and his hips, and and he had to overcome that. Talk about that. Yeah, he did. He it was a, it was an issue from birth where uh, it was an alignment issue, um, and yeah, through the first two two to three years of his life, there was um, some risk of long term damage. They did correct the issue, and it's not particularly uncommon in, in children. You know, a little bit of a widening of the hips, but uh, even if you look at vision of Drazen later in life, he did. His right leg um, maybe did not bend as easy as his left. If you watch, there's sort of an interesting gait to the way that he walks. But, yes, um, you know, not dissimilar to, to Reggie Miller, who also had braces on his legs until the age of five. Drazen, you know, was, um, you know, subject to this. Uh, it was described to me as like a like a plaster cast that would go around his, his hips, um, and that was on for a period of months in order to correct the the alignment issue. But, yeah, it was something he overcame and, you know, it was overcome at a very early age. But one of those footnotes to history that, you know, obviously could have could have changed his course. Um, take us through his routine. Um, he practiced, it seems like, every single chance he could get, mornings, afternoons, evenings, and these were not easy practices. He really pushed himself. Take us through his routine, especially in his younger years, to to get good enough to play at the levels he did. Yeah. So, you know, Drazen, um, as I mentioned earlier, was very regimented in his workouts. And a lot of that was, um, you know, placing chairs on the floor or, you know, dribbling around them, using chairs as, as screens, coming off screens, throwing the ball out in front of him curling around a a chair shooting Uh, all of that was very regimented as he got older there was a little more sophistication to them I remember uh, being told when he was at Real Madrid he would wear a a vest that was that was laced with all these little plates uh, like weight you know um, and he would shoot jump shot after jump shot with those plates around his around uh, you know almost strapped to him Another instance, you know, and another instance of his dedication was uh, his family visited him in Spain uh, to bring in the New Year for 1989, 88, 89. And instead of going out with them on New Year's Eve, he spent the, the evening in the gym. So that's the level of dedication that, that that he was at. But 
You know, one interesting thing, uh, Warren, that I realised in researching the book, when Dreisen played in Europe, uh, all of his all of his workouts, all of his you know um, work towards his his game was off the dribble, uh, and you know a lot of his movement started from the top of the key, everything off the dribble into the jump shot. When he got to the NBA, he had to train himself to be a spot up shooter. You know, we all think of Drazen as this, you know, all time shooter, which he was as a spot up shooter. And very rarely when he was in the NBA did he, he did he get much off the dribble. Well, he completely changed his workouts when he got to America, realizing that, you know what, I can't get off the dribble anymore. And he can't put the ball on the floor. He couldn't put the ball on the floor. Correct. Yeah. Incredibly evident in the 1990 finals when you see Detroit's, you know, guards, you know, Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumas, Vinnie Johnson made it very hard for Drazen, you know, to, to, do, to do anything really. And, yeah, you know, that was a motivating factor in I've got to learn how to shoot off the catch. Uh, and, yeah, those workouts were rebuilt uh, to tailor the, the only way he was going to succeed in the NBA. Yeah, so he was able to adjust his game throughout his career and to do that, the dedication that he needed in practice with the team and, again, on his own whenever he could, I mean, he was very uh, regimented, again, dedicated, had a passion just to be the best he could possibly be. And the self-analysis is another thing, you know, uh, you know obviously – Scouting today is very different, and and, and uh, you know the level of detail given towards the craft now is at an all-time high. Well, Drazen was just as analytical, you know, in a in a different era, uh, always looking at ways to improve his game. A uh, large video library that he would access uh, of his own games, but constantly seeking ways to get better and improve, and and uh, you know that was evident uh, as we've discussed in the way that he changed his game. So back to the court here, still in Yugoslavia, he's building himself quite a resume. And um, he helped his, I'm going to mess it up again, Sivanek? Uh, Sivanek. Yep. Sivanek. He helped the <laughs> Sivanek team to a surprising run at a championship, one that they lost, then won, then lost again. So first, talk about the type of player he was in Yugoslavia. What were his strengths and weaknesses? And then tell us about that championship they did win um, and the one they, they lost uh, controversial, controversially to Bosna. Yeah, that's, it's a great story. But to answer the first part of your question, he was a, you know, uh, Shibenka was a very uh, relatively new team to the Yugoslavian League. They had been in a second tier uh, competition uh, until 1979, but, uh, right around the time Drazen joined the team at, at the age of 15, they were elevated to the first league. Um, and, you know, he, he was on a, on a team that had veteran players, um, including Dario Saric's father, in fact, uh, was a teammate of Drazen's. It, it was a team uh, that had never won anything. Um, and they were, you know, Drazen was in a position where he could play um, and, and develop and grow. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of his movements were off the dribble. Um, that was the sort of the origins of his game, so to speak, on the offensive end of the floor. But, you know, watching film of Drazen at that period of time, what a, what a confident young man he was. What a, you know, 
he hesitate to use the word because of the negative connotation, but he was cocky and he was, you know, he was brash and he was, you know, the confidence just was so evident. Um, and what resulted was, uh, you know, this dramatic improvement. Um, and he averaged about 20 points a game in 1983 uh, in the Yugoslavian League competition. Uh, Shebenka made the final, as you mentioned, uh, and played Bosna. Uh, the third and decisive game was played at a place called Baldeacon Hall, which is where Dryzen grew up, where, you know, it was a short walk from his house. It's where, you know, the famed workouts that we've discussed took place. And sure enough, the, uh, they had an opportunity to win the Yugoslavian League title uh, on, on, on his home floor. Uh, they, they were down 82-81, I believe the score was, when Drazen took a last-second shot, which he actually missed. It was contested. Um, and, you know, fans uh, sort of uh, Bosna, believing they had won the game, the, the clock had expired, um, you know, sort of started celebrating an official made a decision to call a foul and it was, you know, at least a 30 second, thirty to 45 seconds after the, the final buzzer, <laughs> which, you know, you think about it now is would never happen. Drazen's coach actually... Except in the 72 Olympics between the U.S. <laughs> and the USSR. Yeah, that's right. And some people are not even over that yet. <laughs> which I don't blame them. But, you know, that Drazen's coach foreseeing... A potential problem actually said to Drazen, you know, make one of two. Let's go to overtime and let's win it in a fair way. You know, let's let's win it properly. And even he did not believe it was a foul. Drazen looked his coach in the eye and said, I'm, I'll make both. You know, I want to win the title. And, you know, he's an 18-year-old kid telling his coach that. Uh, and sure enough, he made both. And it wasn't until the next day that a ruling was made that, that, that the victory, uh, you know, was was null and void but not only that they were going to have to replay the game well yeah sure enough uh the game they you know went to replay it the following week and and Shebenka did not show up for the game so yeah they were not awarded the title but uh, that you know that game deserves its own, deserves its own documentary because it, sure. you know what a wild finish one of the things that Drazen had to do it's not something that we need to do here in the US um, he had to go on and fulfill military obligation living in Yugoslavia. Um, now, I'm sure there were some rough times for him, but overall, he was afforded every opportunity to play for his country and to work on his game. Talk about that. Talk about, I guess, preferential treatment. Yeah, and, you know, we're talking, so Drazen went into the Army uh, for the 1983-84 season. So we're talking about, we've just talked about the, the Bosna game. You know, Drazen's obviously one of the premier guards in Yugoslavia. And yes, off the heels of that, he goes into to service. You are right. He was afforded preferential tre- treatment in the, in the sense that he had unlimited access to a gymnasium. He was able to work on his game. Uh, and actually found uh, some, some sound bites where Drazen credited that year of his life to improving the range on his jump shot. Jump shot, beg your pardon. I uh, I spoke to one of his his late future teammates, a gentleman named uh, Vladimir uh, Parasevich, who was in the army with Drazen at that period of time, and and yeah, he said Drazen was maniacal in that particular year, just uh, fulfilling his his service obligations in the morning and then spending afternoon and evenings in the gymnasium working on his game. And 
Uh, the only time he, he one of the few times he, he left uh, base was um, actually to come to the uh, United States in November of 83 uh, to tour US colleges with the Yugoslavian national team. And, and it was there that um, he signed a letter of intent to go to Notre Dame. So, uh, you know, his future was very much um, a source of interest for the general public and, and not to mention the basketball community. So, yeah, he had to fulfill his year of service, but he also made it work for him. Yeah, um, Notre Dame, Digger Phelps, who wrote the foreword to your book, um, he saw something in Drazen, and and he then took some trips to Yugoslavia and told Drazen how much he wanted him. He wanted him to come to Notre Dame, but ultimately Drazen decided to stay home. So talk about Digger's uh, uh, fascination with Drazen Petrovic and why Drazen opted to stay home instead of going to Notre Dame. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I was I became aware of the Notre Dame connection to Drazen very early on in the research project. But one question I had was, you know, why was Diga Phelps there? Why, you know, how did he end up in Yugoslavia? You know, why was he even, you know, conducting clinics there in the first place? And a, a, a big trend throughout the 60s and 70s was American coaches, collegiate coaches going to Europe and spreading the word, spreading the game, so to speak. You know, they were the, the undisputed, the masters of basketball. And the European coaches were just, you know, looking to, to develop the game. And you can see the early, you know, plantation of seeds for, you know, the growth of the game in Europe through these clinics, you know, techniques on offense and defense. So that's how Digger Phelps got to Europe. He was in, um, in Shibenik in 1980. Uh, and that's when he first saw Drazen. And, you know, he stood out uh, for reasons that we've spoken about earlier. You know, he was he was advanced for his age. Um, you know, he, his skill, his techniques were all very, very sound. And then, uh, you know, in 1981, 1982, so on, Drazen would tour America every November uh, with the Yugoslavian team. And, and, and that's where the interest came from. Digger Phelps, you know, offered... You know, he gave Drazen a visit um, to Notre Dame in 83, had him sign a letter of intent, you know, even followed up prior to the, uh, to the Olympics, you know, to ensure that Drazen was going to come. You know, eventually Drazen did not come. It would mean, you know, foregoing, you know, certain um, obligations in Europe to play basketball in America. But I do often wonder, you know, you look at Detlef Schrempf, who, you know, grew up alongside Drazen. They played at junior tournaments against each other. He went to high school in, you know, Washington State and then went to, you know, played at the NCAA level. And his, you know, he was never thought of as a European in the traditional sense that, you know, he had earned his his merit at, you know, in the American, you know, uh, system. I remember, I remember him at the University of Washington. Yeah. And, he, you know, eighth pick in the draft in 85. And, you know, he, he was he was validated, for lack of a better term. Now, I wonder how Drazen's path would have followed if he had have gone to Notre Dame. And Digger Phelps was very excited about the potential of, of having him there. So uh, he was certainly good enough to play at the Division One level. And it was just, you know, it, it never happened. And, you know, Drazen continued in Europe. But that's one of the things I wanted to get to the bottom of. You know, how did it come about that he was being scouted or being observed in the first place? 
and why he didn't go. And yeah, it was an interesting portion of the book. Mm-hmm. So, so he stays home. He plays in Europe. He goes to the national team, continues to make a name for himself. He wins scoring titles and championships. And ultimately, he goes on to play for Real Madrid. Now, I know I'm jumping around a little bit. We can't, we can't cover every single detail in your book. You've got to get people out there to buy the book, right? Absolutely. But now, this is the time, this is around the time that Drazen really catches the attention of the NBA. So a few questions here. First, talk about Drazen's career in Yugoslavia and how, I guess, he might have been the one to actually open the doors for guys like Vlade Divac and Dino Raja and Tony Kukoc because they saw that there are Europeans who have the talent to play in the game, and that was based off of how good Drazen was. Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, Europeans had played collegiate basketball in America, but um, and, and some had even been drafted. Uh, Kresimir Trosic, who I mentioned earlier, a Croatian, was drafted in the early 70s by both Portland and the Lakers in consecutive years. So, But the difference was... It was never entertained. The idea was never truly entertained that, you know what, an international player or a European player is going to go to the NBA. You know, that would mean relinquishing national team obligations and, you know, representing, you know, their country at a, at a, at a greater level. So the NBA was never truly a consideration until Drazen and then Arvidas Sabonis were both drafted by Portland in 86 uh, Portland actually used a first-round pick on on Sabonis in 86. Um, excuse me, he'd been drafted the year before also by Atlanta. So it was around that time that the momentum was building where someone was going to do this. Someone was going to go to America and be successful. Uh, I mentioned two players earlier. Uh, Georgi Guchkov played with Phoenix in 85-86 and then another player, Fernando Martin, played with Portland in 86-87. Neither of them were successful. The language barrier was a problem. You know, adjusting to the day, daily grind of the NBA was a problem. There was all these little infractions where it just wasn't going to work. By the time Drazen was emerging, and as you mentioned, um, very successful in Europe, uh, with Sabona um, based in Zagreb in Croatia, they won two European Cups. They won a domestic title. He gradually moved to Real Madrid, which was, you know, something of basketball royalty in the Spanish league. And, and, and that was seen as a, another gradual step towards the NBA. Um, as I mentioned, Portland had his draft rights. Uh, he didn't go over in 86. He didn't go over in 87. Um, Portland approached him after the Olympics in 88 to see if he was uh, going to come. Uh, and it wasn't until 1989 that sort of, you know, a series of events led to him ultimately deciding to go to the NBA. It was always there. It was always a vision in his mind, but there was some trepidation. Um, As I mentioned, players had failed, um, so there was some hesitation. But really it was Drazen and Sarunas Marshallonis and then Divac as well uh, going to the NBA in 89 um, that really, really paved the way and, and, and really need to be credited as the first wave of players to really make that, make that stand. 
Now, now you talk about Sabonis, you talk about Vlade Divac and Tony Kukoc and a couple of the other guys. How much better or just how good was, in comparison, Drazen Petrovic? How much better was he than the competition he was facing on a daily basis? Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. You know, Drazen played in a um, – when, when in Europe in the, in the 80s you would win a, your domestic competition, you would play in something called the European Cup. And that's where he was playing against Sabonis – and, uh, you know, Fernando Martin and, you know, other great players in Europe. That's That was the best competition, the ultimate competition. Drazen, no matter where he played or what level, he was getting his points. But if you compare him not against those players but against the average players, there was a, there was a great difference. Uh, European, European players were good, um, but Drazen was certainly on a different level. He was certainly even a standout from a, from a young age, was, as we've talked about. Um, the fact that he was drafted by an American team obviously signified just how great that difference was. But the other thing is he was the only guard at that period of time. Marshall Onis didn't sort of come about until about 87 when he started appearing more on national teams and, and he was particularly good at the European Championships in 87. So he... His announcement of arrival came a little bit after Drazen's. So Drazen was really the first guard in Europe to, to make himself uh, known on a, on a world scale and to be considered for the NBA. And I think that's the, the biggest differentiation when discussing him with the Sabonises, the Divots, Kukoc, Raja, much bigger players and much more certain, for lack of a better term. Now, to get to the NBA... He had um, he had to work at something else, something called the twenty-eight year old rule. Yeah, can you tell us what that was and how he got that rule to change? Yeah, you know that's that was one thing that I was really interested in when researching the book. There was rules in place at the time that prohibited players from leaving their native country to go to say another country within Europe to then make money, you know, make a living, a suitable living. Yugoslavian basketball, yes, healthy, as I've mentioned, but there was money to be made in the Italian league, uh, which actually housed, you know, a number of former NBA players, including, uh, you know, Joe Bryant, Kobe's father. You know, you had Spain. There were players there um, who, who were making money. So in Yugoslavia, you know, they, they introduced a rule where you, the, there was a previously a rule where you had you couldn't leave your native country until you were 28 years old or had played X amount of games uh, for the national team. Well, when Drazen signed a contract with Real Madrid uh, in the mid 1980s, uh, you know, at risk of losing you know their greatest export or, or having a, a bad relationship with Drazen, that rule was relaxed. That rule was effectively rewritten to allow Drazen to go to Real Madrid at the age of, what, 24? He went to, uh, to Spain. Uh, and that, you know, you think about, you know, Drazen in 1988, he'd been part of the scene for so long, but he was still only 24 years of age. So he deemed that the right time to go to Spain. Um, it was a very profitable contract. And that was, once again, the stepping stone to that end goal, which was the NBA. And when he got to Real Madrid... Um it wasn't 
clear cut that that was a team he was going to go play for in Spain. If I remember correctly, there was a little battle for his services. And when he finally did get to Real Madrid, I guess the impression I got is that the players didn't really accept him, despite the fact that he made them such a better team. Yeah, yeah, you're correct on both accounts. Strausen actually entertained offers from Barcelona as well as Real Madrid. Uh, and then I even found newspaper reports where he had signed with Barcelona. That was never um, never authenticated through my research, but you know there were rumours that... And he was obviously using the two clubs to leverage against each other. But as far as acceptance, that was very difficult for Drazen. He had a, a very strong history playing against Spanish domestic clubs in various competitions, but also against the Spanish national team. Um, even there was even an incident. Not so he signed the contract with Real Madrid in 1986. There was a, a tournament that summer uh, where he actually spat on a referee, uh, which is obviously not not very nice behaviour. Yeah, but no. <laughs> uh, you know, there were that they were the sort of things that happened in 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 games versus Spain, and you know there was a very heated heated rivalry with with particular players in Spain. When Dresden got to Real Madrid for the 88-89 season, it was it was like a an outsider was being brought in. Um, you know, Real Madrid was a successful team. They didn't, you know, what do we need this guy for? And, you know, obviously with the history, it was very hard for Dresden to fit in. Uh, he was almost reclusive for that period of time that he was in Madrid. And even though the team was successful and they did win important games... Uh, they didn't win the uh, the uh, Spanish league title that year. They did lose to Barcelona, coincidentally. But uh, it was a, a challenging year for Drazen, um, fitting in. But once again, he was. It was all the fixation on the end goal was. I need this to progress, and he was willing to put up with with whatever issues uh, came along the way. Right. So, and as you said earlier. Um, he was drafted in 1986. Somehow Portland, um, you know, Bucky Ball, B- Bucky, Buck Walter. He caught the eye of Bucky. Portland drafts him in 1986. Doesn't go to Portland right away, as you had discussed. Um, and he had to really work at leaving Europe to get to Portland. Um, he wanted to improve his game. He wanted to go there prepared. He had to get that 28-year-old rule changed. And then there were contracts and court cases and who had jurisdiction. There was a lot of legal maneuvering. How did it all go down? Please explain what happened. You know, this this was really hard to not only research but write about. And I it was cross-checking with Drazen's agent. In, in, he had a Spanish agent. He had Warren Lagari, who would be his his NBA agent during his NBA years, and he also had an attorney in Portland, a gentleman named Nicholas Goyak, who was a, a wonderful gentleman who who recently passed away, who was very close with Drazen, and he helped navigate that legal that legal maze. Really, Drazen was contract contractually obligated to Real Madrid. He had a multi year deal. Uh, he only played there one season, and then in in 1989 when it became apparent that, uh, you know, first of all, American, uh, you know, professionals were going to be playing in the Olympics. So 
as a result of that, you know, that meant, you know, um, national team players from other countries could also play in the NBA now and not relinquish those. So, you know, Vladi was drafted by the Lakers in 89. Marshall Onis signed a contract with the Warriors uh, in, in 89. All those people, you know, those players were heading over there and Drazen wanting to be part of that revolution, wanting to be in the NBA, uh, also decided that he was going to cash in on his opportunity to play with Paul and he was going to make that happen. Effectively, you know, Real Madrid said, we're not letting you out of this contract. You know, the best player in Europe, we're not letting him go. Uh, and, and what actually happened was it was in the middle of the night. His, his, his American agent took he and his girlfriend to the airport. They flew out of Spain. They arrived in Portland the next day. You know, Dryzen left a note in his apartment in, in Madrid, basically saying what he had done. You know, he knew that someone would go look for him. And, you know, Portland had sent representatives to Madrid, you know, in the, in the prior months trying to, you know, gauge Dryzen's interest. He was desperate to go to America all of a sudden and, and, and test his abilities in the NBA. But, the fact that he was contractually obligated, the fact that he was, you know, effectively tied to Madrid made that difficult. You know, they they made it work. Portland obviously hired some powerful representatives. Dryzen had this sure. massive legal team back in Portland and, and what resulted was they gave him, you know, effectively his rights to play for Portland and, yeah, he ended up being in, in the NBA for 89-90. But it was not an easy thing. It was not a situation where you simply sign a contract um, you know, Dryzen, as I mentioned, he was tied to Madrid and, and they made it so that, uh, you know, he was able to go to the NBA. And when he got to the NBA, it wasn't that easy either. I mean, he ended up with a really good team, the Portland Trailblazers. Um, and actually, I was at the finals that year between Portland and Detroit. Just oh, wow. a side note. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I, I went to a couple of the games in Detroit. Um, the Trailblazers had a really good team. I mean, they had Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter. You know, they were a real contender for the NBA championship. It it had to be disappointing for Drazen. Sure, he goes on and plays in the NBA Finals, but their coach at that time, Rick Adelman, he wasn't sure what to do with Drazen based on the fact that European players really didn't have much of a track record in the NBA. And add to the fact that when Drazen got there, he was, he was hurt. Um, it wasn't what Drazen expected when he got to Portland, was it? No, no, it certainly wasn't. And, and you, you made a very important point there. The track record was, was not there. You know, Europeans were, a, were a, an unknown quantity, um, you know, and and also you're right. Dryzen arrived in Portland with a with a back problem. He had a cyst um, in his lower back that needed to be surgically removed. So he he was not completely healthy. He missed training camp. He was behind two All Star players. You know, Drexler, one of the greatest to ever play his position. There was always going to be a limitation on on the minutes that were available. And this team was very different to the one that had drafted him in 1986. All those players, you know. Maybe not Drexler. He was already an all-star in 86, but Porter, small school. Kersey, small school. Duckworth, small school. Like, you know, they later added Buck Williams. This team had grown and developed over time. By 1989, they were very, very firmly set for a run uh, in what resulted was two final 
finals appearances. But, you know, an interesting story that kind of sums up the mindset, you know, there, there was at least two Portland beat writers who told me uh, that, you know, they would get calls from European journalists, you know, asking why Drazen wasn't playing. They just could not wrap their minds around the fact that their best player, you know, was playing 12 to 15 minutes in, in Portland, couldn't understand it. Drazen couldn't understand it. He had this unwavering belief uh, and, and, you know, obviously justified by his later performance. But I came to, to reconcile that Portland was a necessary step in Drazen's development at the NBA level. It was, you know, if he had got, you know, maybe ended up on an expansion team or a bad team, you know, maybe things turn out differently. Portland was a necessary, you know, it was a message it was a realisation that, you know, this is what it requires to play at this level to be successful. And I, you know, came to believe that that was something that needed to take place in order for Jarzen to then proceed and develop. Um, in your book, The Mozart of Basketball, you wrote that when Drazen did get to the NBA, he realised as you were just talking about, just how much better the competition was as opposed to Europe, and he had to change some of his game, and we talked about that. He could no longer put the ball on the floor. How long did it take Drazen to adjust to the game in the NBA? You know, I I, I began reading, obviously, through game recaps, and, and you know, you you pick up little nuggets here and there. And obviously Drazen was a curiosity. He was, he was new. He was from, from, from Europe. So there was, there was good coverage on his game. And the biggest thing, the overwhelming thing that, that stood out was he was having a lot of difficulty putting the ball on the floor. And that, that, that survived all through that first season. There were gradual changes to his game as the season wore on. But even, even after that rookie season, Drazen stayed in, in uh, in Portland over the summer, they they scrimmaged against the the uh, the team USA that that played in the World Championships in 1990, a team that had future NBA players on it. And Dryzen was forced to play point guard in one of those scrimmages and had a terrible time. It was a real it was a real issue for Dryzen that first year in the NBA to adjust. As you mentioned, he couldn't put the ball on the floor. It was a very the, the movements that he was able to make in Europe simply weren't there in America. So I would say the adjustment period was all through that first season. Of course, by year two, Danny Ainge has arrived. So whatever changes Dryzen's made, he's not able to implement in Portland during that first half of that 90-91 season. But yeah, the, the rookie season was an adjustment period. He had some games, successful games, good performances when he got minutes. I know uh, Drexler missed some games in February. Dryzen had, had some some breakout games on an East Coast swing. But that first season was was really hard for Drazen. And, and and as I mentioned, it was a necessary thing I've come to realise. I would love to ask him if he if he was still alive, I would love to ask him what his memories are of that that year in Portland. Because you know we all focus on he wasn't playing, what a struggle it was. You know, personally it was really hard for Drazen to accept. I would love to know what he would looking back on that period of time, how he would feel about it and whether he feels the same way I do. That it, that it was something that he had to endure. You know, you said that they got Danny Ainge and that that first year was, you know, it was tough. Um, it was necessary. But the second year wasn't much better because they did get Danny Ainge and Drazen was 
further down the bench. And um, this really upset him. This was not what he thought he was getting into. And ultimately, he requested a trade. Why did Portland, why did Rick Adelman give up on him so quickly? Yeah, you know, that's it's, it's an interesting question. And then it, it, you may even need to look at it differently. Why did Drazen give up on Portland would, would perhaps be better. Well, that's a and, good idea, yeah. Well, to answer that question, the, the fingerprints on this particular situation come from Warren Lagari, Drazen's agent, who for better or worse, he loved Drazen, man. He, he just loved him, really, really had a good relationship with Drazen and it really cut him up to see Drazen struggling emotionally. You know, Drazen, as confident as he was during this period of his time, uh, period of time in his life and in his career, he was considering going back to Europe, especially that second season when the minutes completely dried up. And Warren Ligari really thought, you know, I've got to rescue Drazen from this situation. And, and he is the one that suggested the trade demand. Uh, Drazen went to Jeff Petrie, uh, you know, an all-time great with the Blazers in their early days who was in the front office and, 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 and requested a trade. The team fined him and then rescinded that fine. It was a really messy situation. Rick Adelman actually kept a diary, uh, a book. He wrote a book that particular season. I've got it here in my office, actually. Um, it's called the, the Long Hot Winter. And he wrote about Drazen in that. And, and what a distraction that was. The team started off so well. And Drazen's trade demand came at it, you know, it was really seen uh, uh, as, a, as a distraction, as a bad thing. I even wrote later that he, he, you know, in that same book that he didn't think Drazen would ever be a star in the NBA. This was just a marginal player, you know, that, that's making these demands as if he is something more. Um, you know, so it was, a, it was a, a tough situation for Drazen, but really motivated by his agent who wanted him to succeed and, and who believed he could succeed. So that was really where that trade demand came from. But the second season, like a, uh, it was a real, real, real problem. He just simply wasn't playing at all. Uh, whatever minutes he was getting as a rookie were, were effectively gone in that second year, and, and something had to change. And what changed was he was traded to uh, New Jersey. And really, I think this was the best thing that could have ever happened for Drazen. But he still had to overcome a couple of obstacles. And before he could become the star of the team – Again, he actually considered giving up and going back home. How trying was the first few months with the Nets? What was going on? And again, why was he considering going back home? I mean, I guess Bill Fitch being your coach is a pretty tough thing. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. It's, uh, you know, there was a drill sergeant somewhere in his DNA, uh, maybe even his father, Bill Fitch, I, I believe. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, you know, if you go to Drazen's, uh, you know, get statistics, you would say, oh, you know what, got to New, Jer New Jersey, things got better, you know, happy, happily ever after. It wasn't the case at all. Like Drazen, well, not at all. It, first of all, he, Willis Reed, you know, who I did not speak to in the book, and believe me, I tried and would have been great, he gave up a first-round draft pick for Drazen. You know, you think about that. That was a pretty gutsy thing to do because Drazen was 
we still, you know, a year and a half into his career, we still really didn't know where he was at, what his potential was, could he be successful in the NBA. Uh, Willis Reed gave up a first-round draft pick. Drazen goes to New Jersey, which is not a successful team. They hadn't been successful really since they came across from the ABA. And the minutes were there, played about 20 minutes a game, averaged about 12 points a game in that half season. But he was miserable. Drazen was really, really miserable. Bill Fitch was particularly hard on him. Uh, and I did speak to Fitch for the book. He, you know, it's funny. We're, we're in this analytical, this analytics era of basketball currently where statistics are everything. Fitch actually told me about um, a statistical report that he used to get um, from one of Pete Newell's sons. And yeah, I read, I read about this, yeah. That Drazen would appear, you know, for his efficiency, for, you know, playing this short amount of time and, and, and what productivity he brought. And, and, and that was also a key reason why the Nets got him. So despite all of that, Fitch was very difficult to, for Drazen to, to, to work with initially. Um, and maybe Fitch saw something in Drazen. Maybe he was testing him, I don't know. But uh, Drazen did consider going back to Europe uh, and, and almost got to the point where he didn't unpack in New Jersey, it was it was a period of time before he did, you know, get his belongings out of boxes from Portland and and settle in. But once he did, he was off and running. But once again, that that first hurdle to cross in New Jersey was probably the hardest. Well, what was the turning point? And again, what adjustments did he have to make in his game to fit in with the New Jersey Nets? Yeah, well, once again, you know. We keep coming back to this theme. It's all about adjustment. Like, Drazen was never settled in the NBA. It was always, it's always got to be something. The next, you know, what have I got to add to my game? How, you know, I'm not getting minutes. How do I get minutes? It was always what's in front of me, and that that's really the theme, not only for his NBA career but for his life. You know, a couple of important things happened. Drazen got minutes in that half season in New Jersey. Uh, Reggie Theus left. He was the starting uh, one of the starting guards, and he left um, at the end of the '91 season. Drazen also, for the first time in his adult life, in, in 1991, he did not participate in anything uh, related to the Yugoslavian national team. Part of the reason for that was, you know, obviously his desire to improve his career, but also because of the the, the turmoil going on in in Yugoslavia during that period of time. Uh, Drazen was sensitive to those issues and decided that he would stay in America during that off-season. So, you know, things were aligning where Drazen was going to get minutes for the 91-92 season, and, and he felt staying in America was going to, you know, during that off-season was going to enhance those opportunities, and, and that proved correct. So a um, series of events led to 91-92, and, and he finds himself as a starting guard in the NBA. Yeah, with a pretty good team, Derek Coleman and... Uh, Kenny Anderson. I mean, they had, a, they had a really good team. You know, you just touched upon something that we really haven't discussed in depth, and that is the situation back home. Croatia wanted to secede from Yugoslavia, and that's where Drazen was from, Croatia. And that was a big deal, especially for guys like Drazen and Stojko Vrankovic, who was playing for the Celtics at that time. That had to be a real heavy burden on them. How did that affect them? And, of course, 
when you consider a guy like Vladi Divot who draws in and he were good friends, but now Vladi's on the other side of the conflict. That's got to put another type of strain on Drazen. I'm not sure we're, meaning Americans, are capable of understanding the mental aspect of such a situation. Talk about that. Talk about the distraction. I guess that's really an awful word to use, distraction, when all this is happening back home. But uh, uh, mentally, basketball, he's got to be great at it. He's got this situation back home. He's losing people that were his friends because now they're being split up because yeah. of what side of the line they're on. Man, that's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, and you know, like even just unpacking all of those issues was something I found very intimidating. You know, I, I'm not even going to pretend that I understand what that was like or, you know, even writing about it, there is some fear that perhaps I'm going to write something or, or misinterpret it or, you know, what means something, you know, something means something to one person may mean something else to another, you know, even just the term, you know, civil war, a Croatian said it's not a civil war, you know, civil war implies that both sides are fighting. It's like, you know, we're protecting ourselves, you know, we're, we're being attacked and it's like, gosh, you know, how do I, how do I tackle this? But one question I would ask of those closest to Drazen was, you know, was it a big part of his life? You know, did it define him in any way? And obviously uh, things have been written, things have been said that, you know, his relationship with Vladi, you know, obviously it did deteriorate, uh, you know, but, you know, like you know, how did that come about? Well, you know, obviously it was for issues that were bigger than them, greater than them, you know, Drazen, uh, you know, I found clips even after this this particular war was taking place where Drazen was very complimentary of Vladi uh, and of his game. So, like, yes, the friendship did, the friendship was spoiled. It was it was made it difficult to continue contact. Um, but that there was that history there where they had played together for a long time from the middle part of the 80s through. Those things still meant something to Drazen. But the war, you know, the, the issues in Yugoslavia... I don't even know how to, what to call it. You know, those things, you know, were important. Independence was important to Drazen, Croatian independence. Uh, you know, he was involved in several rallies in and around New York City just to lend his support. Um, obviously being one of the, the bigger name athletes in Croatia, representing Croatia at some stage was important to him. But as far as being a, a zealot for the war cause, like that wasn't really Drazen. Yes, he was passionate about it. Yes, he was concerned about it. But at the same time, he was very, very uh, driven to be successful in his career. And, and that that's where a lot of his emotion lie. Mm-hmm. Well, back to basketball. After all, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, 1992, the Olympics, Barcelona. Now, um, this is when the U.S. decided to field probably the most famous and strongest basketball team in international play history, the Dream Team. But despite all that was happening back home for Drazen, Croatia also entered the Olympics, and it fielded one heck of a team. Drazen, Tony Kukoc, Dina Raja, Stojko Rankovic, of course, Drazen believed he could beat anyone. What a great feeling. 
but beating the U.S. was a virtual impossibility. So really, the competition was for the silver medal. How did Croatia do, and what did fielding a team mean for the people back home in Croatia? Yeah, you know, it was an incredible source of pride for Croatia. They only gained their independence in, in late 1991, uh, you know, some six, seven months before the Olympics. Uh, and they were only really approved for Olympic competition in, in January of 92. So it, was, it all came together very quickly. Um, spoke to several members of that, that Olympic team and just the pride was so evident, you know, being the first, you know, group to represent Croatia, you know, especially during that period of time, just pride. Drazen set the tone in, in training camp, you know, in, in May, June of, of, of 92, you know, obviously with his standing in world basketball, but also with his approach and just his determination, you know, it really came through. I really enjoyed watching those games back during the research process, just how passionate he was about playing for Croatia, uh, you know, and, and, and the tears streaming down his face when, they advanced to the gold medal game because, you know, that, as you mentioned, it was impossible to, and it was never going to happen where another team was going to take gold uh, other than the American American team. But just the tears streaming down Drazen's face when they won the game that got them into the gold medal game really says it all, you know. And, uh, you know, a medal wasn't assured, even, even with all that talent, just because of how quickly everything had come together. Obviously, the, the things going on back home, but just immense pride in representing Croatia. That, that was just the overwhelming trait that came through, you know, uh, when looking at Drazen's time. And, and you know, kind of hard to believe, you know, he was, he was the leading scorer in the gold medal game and, and he was in the last 12 months of his life. That's really hard to, to believe, you know, greatest, probably his greatest basketball moment. And he was so, you know, no one knew it at the time, but it was, it was so close to the end. It's just, just a real tragic uh, irony. Sure. You know, um, and we're going to get there momentarily. But meanwhile, back in the U.S., the Nets and Bill Fitch parted ways and New Jersey hired Chuck Daly. How big was that for Drazen? What did Daly and his assistant, Brendan Scherer, see in Drazen Petrovich? I mean, like you said, just, you know, what a tragedy. This tragedy is about to happen and one of the saddest things about it is he's finally got a coach who really believes in him and yeah wow I mean what did Daly see in him and 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 how did his game turn yeah you know it's 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 amazing how the planets align you know Daly's coaching the dream team you know they played against Croatia twice in the Barcelona Olympics you know he's 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 already signed to be, you know, the, the coach of the Nets and all these things are in place where he's got this front row view of Drazen. And, you know, he'd coached against Drazen in the 1990 finals, as we've talked about. You know, he was obviously aware of, of, of Drazen's path, but as Drazen had grown in his game, proven himself at the NBA level, I think Daly was very much invested in, um, you know, in Drazen's success, we, you talked about Brendan Sir. Also, Rick Carlisle was a growing, you know, a young assistant yeah. on that network. Yeah. There were people around Drazen at that time who were there to sort of escort him into that next level that Drazen wanted to get to. So, 
the 92-93 season was really this coming together of, you know, it all, the Nets were finally, you know, they had a, someone to lead them that was a legitimate, you know, Daly's one of the greatest coaches the league has ever seen. You know, he had all this young talent around him, you know, this potential. Finally, they had something to be excited about and, and Dryzen was at the forefront of that. Um, and, yeah, he had a terrific season and, and you know, Daly was, you know, a big reason for that. Daly was famous in Detroit for, for coaching the hot hand. You know, if a player was hot, he would get the ball the next time down the floor and then the next time, the next time. And that's really what happened to Drazen that year. He, he was given more opportunities to to develop his game even further. I know, I know they used to run a side pick and roll with with Drazen and, and one of the bigs on the nets. And Drazen's there putting the ball on the floor again. And it was almost like, you know, he had graduated to that level where he could once again put the ball on the floor. And so his offensive game was was not done growing yet. And, you know, and I attribute that to Daly's arrival. So in New Jersey, in 91-92, he averaged 20.1 points per game. He scored over 24 per game in the playoffs, or just about 24. In 92-93, he averaged 21.2 points per game, and he really became the focal point of the Nets. He thought he should have been an all-star that year, too. Um, but he was snubbed, and he used that snub as motivation to lead the Nets into the playoffs, a really tough five-game series, which they lost to Cleveland. Just how good was Drazen Petrovic? And New Jersey was really a team on the rise at this point, and a lot of it had to do with Drazen. You know, uh, they were on pace to win 50 games uh, in that particular season, but Kenny Anderson broke his wrist right at the end of February and then Drazen suffered a knee injury late in March. Uh, and really, Drazen should have been done for the year, but he, he did make his way back. He, he'd torn ligaments in his knee um, and did get back before the playoffs. but wasn't quite the same. That team was that team was really good. And, and in watching game films back, you know, years later, Really nice balance to the team. They had Coleman was a, a really nice power forward. Kenny Anderson was a developing point guard. They had good shooting around them, obviously, with Drazen. Obviously, well coached, like we've talked about. Like, this was a team that was ready to, to take the next step. As I said, they were on pace to win 50 games. Uh, but, but injuries, uh, they fell short. Uh, once again, they made the playoffs. Dryzen had a terrific year. He had a career high in January against Houston. He scored 44 points. Uh, really, he scored points against everybody. He, he was a really consistent player that year. No doubting it, he was one of the three or four best shooting guards in the league, in the world. Uh, so his place in the game was secure. You mentioned about the All-Star berth. He didn't make the All-Star team, and that's something he felt actually had to do with his background, with, with being European and, and Europeans not being accepted. That was his belief. Um, he had confided in people about that, uh, that he was rewarded with an All-NBA um, nod, All-NBA third team, which in many ways is greater than an All-Star berth. So uh, the validation was there from the NBA. And I think that's, you know, sometimes I, you know, obviously when you're researching something, you, you look at different angles and, it, it did. It occurred to me, you know, what if Drazen's accident had been after his rookie year or 
after his second year or, you know, like the fact that he had that opportunity to, to, to show what he could do was a really, really cool thing. And, you know, his fourth season in, in New Jersey, um, efficiency wise, you know, uh, great shooting, you know, he scored a lot of points and his team won really. That's, um, you know, a sign of, of, of what was to come. And by the way, the fans loved him, and he played to the fans. Yeah, and New Jersey was not known for its vocal crowd. Like this is a, he could light up an arena that had eight thousand people in it, and that's that's the thing about Giles, and he would involve, he would involve the consumer, he would involve the the fan, dragging them in, like with his emotion, the way he played, and that, that's another thing that always attracted me to Giles was, you know, when he's when he's celebrating. You know, you feel involved in that. You know, that, that's a rare quality in a player, and that's something that started in Europe. The sad thing about all of this is obviously what's about to happen that we're going to discuss. But he's playing so well for the Nets, and he there's a contract squabble going on. Um, and when they got eliminated by Cleveland, he said, that's it. I'm going home. I, I'm done with the NBA. I'm going back to Europe. And, you know, a lot of people believed he was. And there were others who said it's just a ploy. What do you think? Yeah, gosh, this was, a, this was the question. This was the, the thing, I, you know, uh, I said to myself, I'm going to find the answer to this, you know, this is surely there is somewhere he said to someone along the way what his intentions were. So to, to, to outline the situation, in 92-93, throughout the whole season, you know, Warren Ligari was negotiating with the Nets and they were going back and forth on numbers. They were unable to agree, I think, I believe on duration of a contract, um, which is the, the sticking point. And, you know, Dryzen felt like, yes, the Nets had invested in him, but he had also invested in the Nets and he felt that he should be rewarded, which is no different to any other player. That's fine. That sort of came to a head, as you mentioned, when they were eliminated from the playoffs. Dryzen had come back early. He had played injured. He had felt that, you know, he had sacrificed himself physically for the team. And and in, in the post game, he immediately just unloaded, became very emotional, uh, you know, basically outlined his intentions to go back to Europe. Uh, as I mentioned, I was, I was going to find out what exactly the story was. I, I did speak to Ligari about it. He, he was not clear on, yes, Drazen had a, a, an offer from a, uh, a European team, Panathinaikos in Greece, uh, and it was a very lucrative offer. Yes, that was there, but there was also hints that, yes, they were using that as leverage. Yes, it was something that um, they were going to use against the Nets offer to perhaps get what they wanted. But I've, I've read many media reports, some who believe, you know, writers who are close to Dryzen who believe, yes, he was going to go back to Europe. Uh, there was a, Dryzen gave a, um, Dryzen gave an interview with a Greek newspaper uh, four days before his death and, um, and he was very, very vague. He, he, he was saying, you know what, I, I'm not committing to a great contract. You know, we're going to see how this plays out. Um, Ligari, so Dryzen was killed on a Monday. He gave this interview on a Thursday. He spoke to Ligari on the Friday. 
said, look, things aren't happening with the Nets. We're going to keep pushing forward and see what happens. Um, so obviously the accident takes place and Drazen is, is up in the air. It's important to keep in mind he was a restricted free agent. So, yes, Drazen did, you know, think about going to other teams in the NBA. That was really not going to happen. The Nets were going to match it. But the other thing yeah, he is... Liked he liked Houston. He liked Houston. He liked Houston. And you know what? That was, that was a really analytical thing because playing alongside Olajuwon, you had guys like Kenny Smith and Vernon Maxwell, you know, and they were one of the first teams to really exploit the, the usefulness of the three-pointer. I asked Drazen's mother when I visited uh, Zagreb, I said, in your heart, you know, you know Drazen better than anyone. You know, he'd worked his whole life to get to the NBA. What do you believe he was going to go, going to do? And without a hesitation, he was going back to the NBA. There's no way he'd worked his entire life to get to the greatest league in the world. You know, she was highly confident. Now, Drazen was his own man. He had not tipped his hat to anybody. You know, this is, he had not divulged what he was going to do. His mother believed in her heart that he would return to the NBA. So that, that was good enough for me. Um, but that's one of those unanswered questions. And, and, and because of a sudden tragic accident, we'll never have the answer. Yeah. And, and that accident, you got to wonder um, had office help in New Jersey never handed over a certain phone number? to Drazen Petrovic, um, he might not, have, might not have never met the woman whom he went to go and visit. You know, things happen, funny reason. Um, I encourage everybody to read your book, The Mozart of Basketball, to really dive in and, and, and see how this all develops. Um, but after the season, tragedy strikes. This is where Drazen's story takes the most horrible turn. It can't get any worse. Literally, figuratively, cannot get any worse. What happened? Yeah, you mentioned the, the, the note that was given to Drazen. Well, there was a, there was a call placed um, to the Nets offices um, sometime in the spring, uh, I believe March 1993, uh, and it was a young woman European in background, wanting Drazen's phone number, very, you know, just asking point blank for Drazen's phone number. Yeah. Obviously, that was not given to her, but she left her phone number. That was eventually made its way through the channels to Drazen. You know, young man, single, curious. He had a friend meet with this, um, with this girl. Her name was Clara. Beautiful young woman, basketball background, modelling background. So naturally, there's a, uh, a mutual affection between them. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that was reported uh, all throughout, and even still today, was that they were dating, that, that they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Uh, I can confirm that that was not true. Um, they were merely just acquaintances, attracted to one another, of course, um, and they did spend time together outside of, you know, and they spent private time together, let me say. Um, so that's what the series of events that led to Drazen meeting with her in Germany. He'd actually arranged to meet her um, maybe, uh, I want to say, May of 1993, uh, and he overslept. His mother did not, did not wake him to go catch a flight to Germany. So his mother was a little bit wary, I think. Of course, wary of strangers trying to enter, you know, Drazen's life. 
so they were yeah arranged to meet um, following this this tournament um, that Drazen played in, in in the first week of June in '93 and. Yeah, one thing led to another, and, and she was at the wheel when a when a very tragic accident took place. And uh, Drazen was asleep at the time; he 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 was not aware of the the impact. Um, it all happened. Yeah, they were driving too fast. Simply put, on a on a road that was too wet, um, and yeah, ran ran straight into a truck. But there are many series of events that could have. Obviously, from you mentioned the first step was, was giving the phone number to Drazen, and then even his decision to to not fly with the Croatian team to to get off at at the airport in Germany and then meet with his friend. Uh, all these decisions, even her decision to drive um, at the way that she was driving in the conditions she was driving in, you know, and we'd still have Drazen here. So yeah, uh, one of those tragic things that frankly will never be reconciled. Um, Dryzen's mother, um, uh, bless her, she's uh, has never never gotten over it, and uh, and and I know a lot of people close to Dryzen never have and never will. So, just a tragic ending to a life that that promised so much. You know, Todd, I reached out to you um, before the tragedy of Kobe Bryant. So we had been talking about doing this interview prior to that horrific accident um, yeah. obviously Kobe fresh in our memories um, now on the court I'm not comparing Kobe Bryant and Drazen but off the court and in the basketball world the outpouring of love and how everyone reacted is very similar just how big was Drazen in the NBA Croatia Yugoslavia the world of basketball his death was a big deal. No, I'm glad you asked that, Warren. I've thought so much about Drazen since Kobe's accident and obviously thought a lot about Kobe as well. Like, it's just such a, it's such a final thing. Like, it happens and then then there's that period of realisation where it's actually happened. I was not old enough to remember uh, Drazen's accident. I knew who Drazen was and I do remember um I was only nine years old, but there was no way I was I was absorbing it or understanding it at the time. But in coming to understand what he meant, you know, you see this outpouring for Kobe and it's really, it's an overwhelming thing. It's such a, you know, it almost takes an accident or something of this magnitude to understand what these people mean to the, to the masses. Well, it was very much like that for Drazen. Uh, I think I, I, I even um, put it into a, into a percentage, I think it was about 4% of Croatia's population attended his funeral. Wow. Like think, think about that. Just this, this massive amount of people um, congregated in one place to celebrate drives, and he represented so much for them. He was a source of pride. He was someone who had gone to, you know, outside of their little bubble and, and had been successful. He was... Yes, he was a basketball player, but he represented success and he represented, you know what, someone from here can be mean something over there. So, you know, we, we love and adore these sports figures in our lives. They represent so much. And, you know, Drazen was like that. And, I, and I'm seeing that now with, with Kobe. It's just, uh, as I said, perhaps it has something to do with the way that they were taken away and, and, you know, the promise of more. And, you know, it's like, gosh, you know, 
did we appreciate them enough while they were here? Do we, you know, all those emotions get wrapped up into it. But, yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting that you bring up Kobe because one of the first things I thought about was Draz and then, you know, uh, it's just such a very cruel thing, such a very cruel way to, to lose your life. And But also, you know, when you – all these signs are that you're going to offer more and achieve more, That that's particularly cruel, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the only difference being Drazen was in the middle of his career. Kobe had put together yeah. a Hall of Fame career. But nonetheless, both incredibly tragic. Hey, in your research, while writing this book, what surprised you most? What did you uncover that surprised you more than anything else about Drazen? That's a good question. You know, I I knew he was I knew he was someone who obviously you've got to have a certain level of motivation certain work ethic to be successful regardless of, of whatever industry you're involved in. But Drazen was determined to be successful and I, and I don't know why. Like why was it important that he be the first European to be a star in the NBA? Like why did he, why was it not enough just to play in the NBA? So like trying to find the answer to that w- was the most interesting thing to me. It was, it was, you know, why did you think the way that you did? Why did you work the way that you did? Why did you, you know, you know, you demand a trade from Portland. Why do you believe you, you're going to be successful? This, this, I just kept coming back to his mindset. That was the most surprising thing, the most interesting thing, and that's the path. You know, you've got to ask the people that, that know him to try to articulate it, and in many cases they couldn't, not even his family. So trying to find that answer was was really the path that I found uh, most interesting. And what is the legacy of Drazen Petrovic? Yeah, gosh, well, you know, we've just had an all-star game that's had the most international participants. So, you know, that's the legacy of Drazen Petrovic. You see um, the three-pointer as a weapon, uh, not only a psychological weapon, but a you know, a, a fast track to success in the modern game. You know, that's Drazen Petrovic. You, you look all around, you know, um, you know, Luka Doncic, you know, a young European who's, you know, was pre-packaged for stardom in the NBA, the acceptance before he's even played a game. You know, why do we accept European players now? Well, that's because of Drazen and the success that he had. So, yeah. Most places you look, Warren, if you look around the NBA, you'll see Drazen's impact. Not only that, you know, you see the success of international teams against the United States in international competition. You know, that's something Drazen is on record as predicting that would happen one day. He didn't know when it would happen, but he, he, he foresaw that. So having the courage to take on the, the so-called masters of the sport, that's Drazen's legacy. So... In most places you look in the modern game, uh, you can see a little bit of Drazen. Your book, The Mozart of Basketball, is such a great book, and it really um, dives into the type of ball player that Drazen Petrovic was and, like we've said before, the passion he had for the game, the work that he put into into the game. And it's just a shame that he was taken away from us um, at such an early age in the prime of his career. Who knows how good he could have been? 
Uh, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes for you early on a Sunday morning. I can't <laughs> tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, Todd, you working on anything else? What, what, what else can we look for from you, Todd? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, and it's an honor to talk about Draws and to even just be a small part of his, his story. You know, it's, it's just cool to, 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 to speak about Draws and to, you know, to, to have the opportunity to write a book is, is really cool. So uh, I'm currently working on an encyclopedia of the NBA finals and it's, um, you know, more a research-based project, but mm-hmm. I just love diving in. And yeah, it's, uh, I plan on being a very big project and, I'm not sure when I'll get done, but just, you know, love the history of the game. And, and, and you know, it's something that, you know, we, we all know about the great moments in the finals, but there's a lot of details that slip through the cracks. So this book's really going to uh, narrow down on those details. And, yeah, um, really excited about it. But, um, yeah, to talk about Drazen and, and to be, yeah, even in a minor sense attached to his story, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, something that I take a lot of pride in. Well, Todd, again, thank you so much for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and I hope you'd consider coming back again sometime. Thank you for having me, and uh, yeah, that would be my pleasure. I appreciate the time, Warren. Thanks a lot. When you look back at the life and career of Drazen Petrovic, you're left wondering just how special it could have been. He was truly a unique individual who had a passion for the game of basketball matched by so few. In fact, I can think of very few who practiced as much as he did. Kobe Bryant and the incredible Pete Maravich are two that do come to mind immediately. On the court, in his brief NBA career that spanned just five seasons, Petrovich averaged 15.4 points per game. But it was his final two years with the Nets where he finally came into his own, averaging just over 21 points a game. In 2013, Drazen was voted the best European player in history by his fellow players. He was enshrined in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, and his number three was retired by the Nets. He won numerous awards in the Euroleagues, including Mr. Europa Star, Yugoslavian Sportsman of the Year, Croatia Sportsman of the Year, and so many more. In short, Drazen Petrovic, as evidenced by his being named one of FIBA's 50 greatest basketball players of all time, was a true superstar. A superstar NBA fans were deprived of seeing in full stride because of the horrific events that took place on June 7, 1993. Thanks again to my guest today, Todd Spear, and the good folks at Sports Publishing, an imprint of Sky House Publishing, for connecting me with Todd. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.